Amen. Uh, I love mornings like this when Jonathan does a stripped-down acoustic version and we get to hear everybody sing. I had a surreal moment because when I came here uh, almost six years ago now, there was maybe 20 people and singing did not sound like that. So uh, this is a blessing. And uh, I'm praising the Lord for the work he's done in the past few years. And I'm thankful for Jesse setting the expectations. Uh, sorry to disappoint you. There will not be ear-tickling or pithy anecdotes this morning. Uh, I know you're used to that. We'll save that for next week. Um, probably not. So um, in our text this morning, we're going to look at a clash of two kingdoms that's presented here. And one of their kings is obvious and seen. The other king is unseen, but his hand is certainly at work. One of these kingdoms is devoted to humility, to sacrifice, to redemption, to reconciliation. The other kingdom devoted to perversion, manipulation, and murder. The latter of these kingdoms consists of unlikely partners. These uncommon enemies who come together for a common purpose, that they gain benefit from the destruction of the one who opposes them. So this is something we're going to draw out in the text, but it's something that is not unique to history. If you love history like I do, um, we've seen this many times throughout history. Uh, we look at, it, at the history of, of England. England used to be made up of individual kingdoms. You had uh, Mercia and East Anglia and Northumbria. And, and so all of these, these kind of smaller kings and their, their, their smaller kingdoms and their kings didn't like each other until the Danes or the Vikings invaded. And when they invaded, now these, th these kings who were always jostling for position and who were always um, who are negotiating back and forth for every bit of land they can get, now they're having to defend their, their home turf. People who don't get along coming together because now all of a sudden they have a common enemy. We saw this in, in World War II. The, the allies came together, but there was also the Axis nations. Both, or both, but all three of Germany, Italy, and uh, Japan were dead set on world domination. And they each wanted their perspective uh, or their uh, respective corner of the globe. And they, and they come together to form this, this axis of, of evil because they want to take over the world. Evil is very much like that. Coming together against a, a common enemy. And so there is very much a spiritual clash going underneath the, the, the surface of this text, of the clash that's going on on the surface. So what I want you to see this morning as we work through the text, in each section, you'll, you'll notice two things. One, king, the king of the Jews will be mentioned in each section this morning. Also in each section, there is an attribute of the nature of Satan in each section. He is an accuser, he is an instigator, and he is a destroyer. And all of these things are at play by the different pieces that he is moving in this board and we'll you know this this chessboard and we'll flesh this out a little bit more uh, but because I got a big text and a lot to do with we're going to jump right in to chapter 15 I'm going to read verses 1 through 15 and as soon as it was morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council and they bound Jesus and they led him away and they delivered him over to Pilate and Pilate asked him are you the king of the Jews and he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had, uh, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he had perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? 
But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Sovereign ruler of all things. Your plan is perfect. It was laid down before time began. None of this surprises you. None of this is plan B or catches you off guard. But you have done all this to show us your glory. To show us your mercy. To show us your love. To show us your grand plan of redemption through your son. Who would humble himself taking on the form of servant. And being obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Who would be mocked and ridiculed as king of the Jews, but little did they know what they were saying. This king could not be held by death, could not be held or bound by anyone. Death could not hold him. He resurrected unto new life that we might have life in him and sent his spirit to pen these words we are going to read and learn from this morning to transform our hearts, to open our ears, to give us eyes to see that we may know and dwell with our God and that we may worship you forever and ever. Lord, I pray everything that we say and do this morning will be pleasing unto you, that your word would teach us and guide us and convict us and help us to stand boldly on the truth of Jesus Christ, our King. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. So this begins early in the morning. Let's quickly recap where we've been. Remember, the last day has been a marathon. They prepared for the Passover. They ate the Passover. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Judas leaves to betray him. Jesus gives them this long discourse about the coming of the Holy Spirit and all the suffering that he's going to engage in. He goes and prays in the Garden of Gethsemane long enough for the, for the disciples to fall asleep three times. Waking up, then the soldiers of the high priest and the soldiers of Rome come with, with Judas, who betrays Jesus with a kiss, turns them over. Jesus is brought to Annas's the 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 previous high priest's home. Then he's brought to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, the current high priest's home. He's given a trial among all of the Sanhedrin. This is probably 2, 3 in the morning by the time all this is finished. And then as soon as day breaks, as soon as it is legal to conduct business, the Sanhedrin has another council that they call. They make a decision first thing in the morning. This is when the Roman day started. The Roman day started at sunset. They did their business early so that in the heat of the day, they could relax and eat grapes or whatever rich Roman people did. But that's, that's why this is as soon as possible, they're going to, to Pilate's home. And so this, this consultation that they held, the elders, the scribes, and the whole council, this is Sanhedrin, the 71 members are most of them in attendance enough to make a decision. And they wasted no time taking control. Notice the verbs here. All the action being done by them. And they bound Jesus. And they led him away. And they delivered him over to Pilate. Right now it seems like they have the upper hand. Right now they have all the power. They have all control. To bind, lead, and deliver Jesus. Imagine that. They're they're trying to bind the man, the only man, who can loose the bounds, the, the, the binds of sin. They're trying to lead the man who we should follow. They're trying to deliver the man over for death who came to be delivered for our deliverance. The irony here continues in this, this battle, these terms are very physical. Binding and leading and delivering. But they're also very spiritual. They think they have a hold of the king. They think they can get their little kingdom back. 
the camp. This word delivered is carried over from chapter 14. Chapter 14, this word delivered is used seven times. The same word for betrayed or handed over. So this theme continues of Jesus being betrayed, being given over, literally in the Greek, to Pilate. But what we see here, as we've seen all along, as we've seen from the beginning of redemptive history, that man's wicked plans... And God's sovereign oversight are working in tandem. None of this is apart from the hand of the Father. And so they're delivering over him to Pilate. Pilate resided in the praetorium, the the governor's palace. And so I want to fill in some, some context, which is helpful in John. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 18. So just to warn you, we're going to flip back and forth in the Gospels quite a bit. So keep your finger in John 18. We're going to come back here. Then we're going to go to Luke. Then we're going to go back to Mark. And then we'll come back to John. That's why God gave you 10 fingers. So uh, leave them. Leave one in John 18. I want to look at the, the first few verses. Starting in verse 28. Then they, being the Sanhedrin, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Realize what's going on here. Think of this big governor's mansion with these Roman columns and steps leading up the front. They wouldn't even step foot on the first step. Why? Because in their minds, if they even came into contact with a Gentile, if they stepped on the barrier of a Gentile's home, they would be, undef- they would be defiled and unclean for the Passover. Yet what did they come there to do? They came there with murderous intentions. They give no thought to the murder in their hearts, but they want to make sure they don't take one footstep in Pilate's mansion. So they remain outside. So they're making this appeal to Pilate as they, as they drag Jesus along, and they're waiting on the ground. And so Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered them, If this man were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. Here's the key. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They had some semblance of autonomy under Rome. They could come and go as they pleased, but they could not put someone to death. Rome had taken the power of the sword from them. And so they realized if they have to murder him, they need someone else to do it. And then, coincidentally, their hands would be clean. It would be on the Romans. See, the Romans did it. We didn't do it. Justice took its natural course, and he got what he deserved. That's what they're, they're trying to do here. But this was to, was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Again, man's evil intentions in God's perfect plan for redemption. So that's what's kind of going on behind the scenes, or going on in, in front of the, the scenes, and they bring him to Pilate. So we need to know a little bit about Pilate. So Pilate, by all historical accounts, was not a reasonable or compassionate ruler. He hated the Jews, but he was tasked with with governing them. But he's also a pragmatist and a people pleaser. So he does what he can to placate the Jews, um, but he's caught up in, if you read the history books, there's all kinds of scandals that he's a part of. And he is often shamed and and corrected by by Rome. Um, And the Jews don't like him either, so he's kind of waffling here. Um, J.C. Ryle calls him a rudderless ship. And so what a rudderless ship is, is if you don't have a rudder, you have no direction. You are just kind of tossed to and fro. Also, this is what immature Christians are called. Or just tossed to and fro by the waves. He's influenced by whoever he's trying to please at the moment. But he may seem like the calm one here, but make no mistake, he's wicked. He's the one who mixed the blood of the Galileans in with the sacrifices back in Luke chapter 13. That's the same Pilate. But compared to the Sanhedrin, he looks compassionate, and that's what this text is going to bear out. So here's the interaction. 
Pilate asked Jesus. So we'll see by the details later in John that this is inside. He takes Jesus inside. He interviews them, interviews him apart from them. And he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, this is interesting. The way this is written in the Greek, the you is up front. So this is really more like you are the king of the Jews. He looks at him, realizing like, are you the king of the Jews? Because you don't really look like a king right now. You're not the type of kings I know. The kings I know have armor and crowns and, and weapons and soldiers and all of these things. You don't really look like a king. Now, Pilate doesn't care if the Jews call him a king or not, but Rome does care if this becomes a competition for them. If it begins to conflict with, with their interests, unless it threatens them. So this is probably national interest, but, natu- but also natural curiosity from Pilate. The term king of the Jews becomes the theme for chapter 15. Six times Mark uses this. And we'll flesh this out a lot more next week. But the Sanhedrin used this title and used this idea to their advantage. Remember I told you we are going to go to Luke. Look at Luke, the same passage in Luke chapter 23. Look how Luke phrases this. So everybody else gives a limited view of uh, their accusations toward Jesus. But Luke kind of peels back the curtain a little bit. Here's what they were saying to Pilate as they deliver him. Luke 23, verse 1. Then the whole company of them, the Sanhedrin again, arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he is himself, or excuse me, he himself is Christ, a king. Notice, They get it partially right. They know who the Messiah is, but they make up lies about him. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. If Jesus is an insurrectionist, if he is a rebellious leader like Barabbas, now Rome has to pay attention, and this is what the Sanhedrin is banking on. But Pilate, when he asks, are you the king of the Jews, he has one thing in mind. Jesus responds, you have said so. Jesus doesn't ask, What type of king are you expecting? Jesus knows what type of king they're expecting, what type of king Pilate is expecting. But Jesus has something entirely different in mind. We're going to, again, flesh this out more next week. But the title king of the Jews goes all the way back to the end of Genesis. All all the way back to the scepter of the tribe of Judah. The covenant made with David that he would have someone on the throne forever. That nations would bow down to him. That he would rule forever and ever. That this king, the anointed of God, the nations would hate in Psalm 2. But that God would put on his holy mountain. And no one would be able to overthrow him. This is the king that Israel was supposed to be looking forward to. This was the, the king that Israel was supposed to worship. But they deliver him over and bind him. And lead him to Rome to be murdered. So here's where the conversation between Jesus and Pilate, their, their private conversation is more helpful. Back in John 18, hopefully you still got your finger there. I didn't forget. Look at this next section beginning in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, so they're inside, they're having this conversation, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Basically, do you really want to know? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus does not answer his question, but he answers the question he should be asking. That's the, what type of king are you? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus tells them, here's the type of king I am. I have servants, I have a kingdom, but you can't see it. You have no eyes to see. And if this really were my kingdom, you would not be able to bind me. 
They, I would not be delivered over to you. You would have no power over me. This is my puppet kingdom. My father is using it for his, his purposes. He is pulling the strings and you can't see it. But Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He is the king of kings. He speaks truth. He is truth. Led by the spirit of truth. He came for his people. He came for those who will hear him, who will love him, who will follow him, who will believe in, in him and lay down their lives for him. But for Pilate, for the Sanhedrin, he's not here for them. And so this is why he can listen to their accusations and he doesn't have to speak up. He doesn't have to defend himself. Let's flesh this out a little bit more. So he answers Pilate's question about the king, but look at uh, verse 3 and 4. And the chief priests accuse him, back in Mark 15, excuse me, and the chief priests accuse him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, and so Pilate was amazed. His silence is a prominent feature in this portion of Mark. No words are recorded from Jesus until the final words he gives, crying out to the Father on the cross. But he is doing this, fulfilling Isaiah 53. This lamb led to the slaughter, opens not his mouth. And Pilate is just amazed, like, how could someone not defend themselves? Isn't this our most base instinct? Stay alive at all costs. Do whatever you can, like Pilate would do. I will lie, cheat, and steal to make sure I retain my power. Why isn't he doing the same? And he's amazed. But there's a difference between amazement and faith. There are many people who are amazed at Jesus. There are many pagans who love the idea of a Jesus of their making, who wonder at the miracle worker. But it is different than having faith in him. So I want us to think a little bit more about why did Jesus not open his mouth? Uh, it made me think of a dream that Martin Luther describes having. He describes this, this dream, uh, nightmare really, where he stands before God in judgment. And Satan shows up with his book of accusations. And one after another reads off Luther's sin. And you did this, and you did this, and you stole, and you lied, and you were greedy, and you blasphemed, and you lusted, and he went down the list. And every time his sin is listed off, Luther sinks lower and lower and lower because they were all true. And when he gets as low as he possibly can, when the burden of his sin is overbearing him, he picks up his head and he says, Satan, but one entry you forgot. Jesus' blood covered all of my sins. His blood shed for everything you just listed. And then Luther could stand up again. Amen. Why doesn't Jesus have to defend himself? Because he's not guilty of their charges. But he's standing there for our charges. He didn't say a word to defend himself. or defend his own righteousness, he was standing there to earn ours. He's not standing there for himself. He's standing there selflessly for us. If you are in Christ, he took the mocking, the insults, the false accusations for you. He's silent because he's standing as our lamb, ready to be slaughtered. The symbolism is thick here at the Passover. And one of the customs at the Passover was for Pilate to release one of their own to him. And so now these last two sections, beginning in verse 6, go from inside Pilate's uh, mansion, palace, to outside. 
Now he's standing on the steps and you're rejoined by the Sanhedrin and the crowd who would not dare go inside. Verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner whom they asked. They had this semblance of control. This is how far free will gets you. You can ask for whoever you want. You will make the wrong choice. Guaranteed. They asked for a specific man among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection. We don't know what the insurrection is, but it's enough for Mark's readers to know. It's the insurrection. So he's a murderer, but he's a revolutionary before he's a murderer. He committed murder within the revolution, but his charge is murder. This man called Barabbas, interesting man. His name comes up a few times. His name is very simple. Bar Abbas, son of father. Maybe that's why he's so mad. He's got this really, really boring name. Um, But a lot of people think that this is kind of a a, a nickname for him. So it isn't in um, our text, but some of the later biblical manuscripts from Matthew say that his given name is Jesus. Jesus bar Abbas. Jesus, son of the father. And so... Uh, if, if you believe Origen, who's a church father in the third century, all the manuscripts in his age contained the, word, the, the name Jesus. So look on the screen. If we read Matthew 27, 17 with this in mind. So, so history kind of confirms this. It's not original. doesn't mean it's not true. Uh, it's just not canonical. That's why we don't read it as part of our scriptures. But if that is true, Pilate's question has a lot more at stake. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you? Jesus bar Sabbath or Jesus who is called the Christ? Do you want me to release this Jesus or this Jesus? What we do know for sure, do you want me to release this son of the father or this son of the father? That's what's at stake. You've got a false Jesus. You've got a false son against the true Christ, the true son, and they choose the false one. Left in our sin and our own devices, we will always choose the false one. You are presented with the the perfect son. You are presented with God in the flesh. As a little child, you are presented with a toy or a snake. You will choose the snake every time. This is what they're doing. They choose the lesser option. So this is built within the text as they choose Barabbas. Or excuse me, as Barabbas is is set up. Verse 8. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? So they asked for the the, the prisoner release. In In Pilate's mind, Jesus is the obvious option. Well, this guy's not guilty of anything. I just talked to him. He might not make any sense, but he's certainly not a threat. Certainly they want him back. But the title he gives him again, the king of the Jews. Remember later on when Pilate makes the placard, he says, I wrote what I wrote. Pilate doesn't understand it. He's not the type of king that Pilate is used to, but he's stuck on this name. And so is Mark. Mark continues to use this name, reminding them of who they are betraying. Reminding them that this is your king. Don't forget. But Pilate perceived, verse 10, this is parenthetical. Mark's putting us into Pilate's mind for a moment. He perceived that it was out of envy. Envies. It's anger or jealousy at someone else's position or someone else's status. They're out of envy. The chief priests have delivered him up. The chief priests are at work the whole time. Judas gets the ball rolling, but he feeds right into their hands, and they, they are continuing their plan all the way through. And they're not just doing it before Pilate. They're doing it amongst the people. Look at verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd and gave to him release uh, excuse me, stir up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. They are now pulling the strings from amongst the crowd. They're instigating. This is another tool of Satan. He is the accuser. 
He stands before the Father, has nothing to stand of his own, and accuses falsely. Even the elect, even his own, but he's also an instigator. Loves to stir it up. We, we all know these people who just want things to go to, to, to go to chaos so that they can sit back and watch. That's what they're doing. They want to wield these people as little mini puppet masters, stirring them up. And they listen. They listen to the voice of lies. They listen to the voice of their enemy. They listen to the voice of these chief priests. And the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Don't miss these two words, for them. They are wicked and murderous and at heart, and they choose someone like them. They choose someone of them for them. Barabbas. And it is fitting because Barabbas belongs with them more than Jesus does. And so this wicked kingdom is in agreement. Now, to a first century reader, this is very strange. Because you've got all of these groups who do not seem to have anything in common. You've got Pilate who speaks on behalf of Rome who doesn't like the Jews. You've got these rich chief priests who are... Um, manipulating people and taking advantage of the systems within the temple to gain political power. You've got the, the crowds who are, who are poor and, and illiterate who are oppressed by both. And then you've got Barabbas, this, this murderous revolutionary who benefits from all this. And they all seem to be in agreement. They're all on the same team. But we must remember there are only two kingdoms. Either you are fighting for one or you are fighting for the other. Now let's bring this to our day. I have conversations with people all the time who expect consistency and logic from the world around us. Why does it seem like Hollywood, big technology, the alphabet mafia, the politicians, the murderous revolutionaries, and terrorist jihadists all seem to be on the same side? Or they all seem to be standing up for one another? Because they are. Don't be surprised when wickedness of all shapes and sizes and colors comes together to further the kingdom of their father. They're the father of lies. We should not be surprised, but so many Christians are. So many Christians, unfortunately, seek comfort in this world. They think if Hollywood loves us, or if the media loves us, or if the politicians love us, or if, if Islam thinks we're nice and fuzzy, they won't hate us anymore. It's not going to happen. Evil is evil. And unless they turn and repent to Jesus, they are enemies of him. And the same thing is happening here. It may seem like all of these parties are separate and they just happen to come together. But at the same time, our sovereign God works through the two cities, as Augustine said, the city of God and the city of man. Right now, the city of man seems to be winning. So let's continue. Where was I? Verse 11. Got for my little, uh, yeah. I got to get off my soapbox and get back to, back to the text. Verse 12. And... Oh, yeah, one more thing before we get to verse 12. This is what I wanted to say. Um, before we get too judgmental here, before we get too judgmental toward the Jews for choos choosing Barabbas, say, I, I would never do that. Like, that's so foolish. This is the obvious choice. Let's press in a little bit then. How often do we side with the world when it comes to the things that we desire and enjoy? How often do we choose the things of the world over the things of God? What type of place in your heart does the things of the world, sports and entertainment and money and politics and all the other things that the world chases after, when you vote with your time, how do you vote? When you are given the option, the thing that pleases God or the thing that pleases your flesh, where do you go? When presented with the choice, you can have blessed time with the Father. You can have fellowship with the saints. 
Or you can have this that gives you this fleeting, fleshly high for a moment and robs you of blessings. Now, we can't all read the Bible 24 hours a day. We can't pray 24 hours a day. This is not what I'm saying. I'm not telling you to go into the mountains and become a monk. But ask yourself a question. This is obvious. So we choose Barabbas over Jesus. But how often throughout your week when you have the, the opportunity, will I choose something that pleases God or will I do what all my coworkers are doing? Will I choose something that pleases God or will I watch something that I would never tell anyone else that I watch? We make these decisions all the time. And they are as obvious as choosing Barabbas over Jesus, but we don't see them in ourselves. And so be careful that we are examining ourselves uh, as we examine those in the text. Because we will make time for what we value. All right, now we're picking up in verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Third time here he uses this title, the king of the Jews. Pilate seems to be hoping for a catch and release. Like, I, I don't see what's going on here. I'm going to get rid of this guy. And if you're just a casual reader, this should seem like, what type of king is this? This king is doomed. There's, there's, there's no hope for him. It's natural to feel like the title is in vain, but we know this is not the end of the story. When he asks them, they respond, crying out, crucify him, kill him in the most wicked way possible, in the most painful and cruel form of torture that the world has ever invented. Like the father of this world, like their father, they revel in death and destruction. They want others to join them in their condemnation. Misery loves company, and they said, welcome him in with us. We want his condemnation to be like ours. And so many have tried to come up with creative ways to figure out it's been some time, we may have forgotten, but it was just a few days earlier. It was Sunday when they were shouting Hosanna. And now Friday morning, it's like they didn't have time for their morning coffee. It's 6 a.m. and they're shouting, crucify him. What happened from Sunday to Friday? And I read all kinds of commentators who tried to bend over backwards to come up with creative ways to figure this out. You don't have to come up with all kinds of historical ways to figure this out. You need to spend five minutes with a person and know that we are fickle. And know that we are so easily influenced by whatever sounds best at the moment. Oh, that sounds good? I'm over here. Just like Pilate, that sounds good? I'm over here. How often does humanity change its mind? How often are people swayed? I've brought this up before, but the crowds are never a good thing in Mark. When they come for Jesus, they want him to be king in a selfish way. They are led by the, the awe of seeing the miracles. But also they're caught right up in the, the torches and, and, and pitchforks like Jesus is Frankenstein. Kill him. We are not to be like the world. We have to caution ourselves from jumping in and out of love and hate. We have to be careful of those who would pull our strings, of those who have a thirst for blood of those who whisper in our ear like the chief priests. Come on, do what everyone else is doing. Don't you want to see blood? Don't you want to see death? This isn't who he says he is. I've talked to so many people who are burdened by the accusations of the enemy. They believe the false reports. They get led into the instigation or many others, they, they take a softer position. They love Jesus until he disagrees with them, until he threatens the status quo. They love Jesus until they find out who he really is and what he requires of them, and then they hate him, and then they want him to die. And when they turn on him, if you are trying to make a Jesus in the image of the world, they will turn on you as well. So Pilate sees all this, and Pilate is obviously confused. And he said to them, verse 14, why? What evil has he done? 
He's stunned. He doesn't realize the spiritual battle that, that he's a part of. Like, okay, I know I've got the power of the sword. I can send him to Rome, but you've got to give me a good reason. But there's no reason here. There is anger. There is emotional vitriol. There's no reasonable response. Many of you are frustrated every day because you expect a reasonable response from the world. This is how the world acts. What has he done? Give me facts. They shouted all the more in their emotional rage, crucify him. This in the original is again and again. This is an ongoing shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And the cross is either a place of ridicule or redemption. They see it as murder, getting rid of the one who stands in their way. We see it as the one who stands in our place. The cross is the great divide between humanity. This is the point in which these two kingdoms clash. How do you view the cross of Christ? They shout, crucify him. In hatred, we shout he was crucified for us in joy. They shout kill him. We shout he was killed for us. Amen? They shout he is dead. We shout amen. Here on these two planks of wood is where the lesser kingdom is defeated and destroyed and overcome by the one who death could not hold, by the one who did not say a word because he was not trying to vindicate himself but purchase a people. Mark, or excuse me, Matthew adds the words of condemnation in chapter 27 for the Jews. They double down here to their shouts of crucifixion. Matthew 27, verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, this is how loudly they're shouting. He took water and he washed his hands ceremoniously before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. I want no part of this. Even Pilate understands this is too much. Pilate, this wicked rudderless ship has to wash his hands. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. You are either shouting crucify him or he was crucified for you. There is no middle ground. Either his blood covers, covers you and your sin or his blood is on your hands like the Jews. This is a clear line in the sand, and no one can straddle this fence. Amen. You either call out to him in repentance, or you shout and shake your fist at him and say, I'm going down with the ship. So back in Mark, Pilate is, has no choice. Reiterates what Matthew says. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, he's still a people pleaser at heart, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The irony here is that Pilate sees his innocence. He says, there's no evil in this man, yet he continues with evil. Yet, looking to please man, he approves of his death. But at the same time, the father knows that there's no innocence in him declares him righteous, worthy, but by his good pleasure in order to please himself and the price of his own wrath delivers him over to death. This is the culmination of Isaiah 53 that we've been looking at the last several weeks. It'll be up on the screen. Yet it was the will of the Lord, Yahweh, all caps here, to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, those he purchases. He shall prolong his days. His kingdom shall not end. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He shall rise again because his work will be completed. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This, do not feel sorry for Jesus. This is the Father's plan, and it was all along. If you feel sorry, repent of your sins. Feel sorry for your wickedness and cry out in gratefulness that he would stand in your place and make intercession for you. Jesus stands in Barabbas' place. He deserved to die, and he was sent off. Um, so the last thing Pilate does here is he releases Barabbas. I thought this was interesting. Has anyone ever seen the Barabbas movie, 1961? It's very good. None of you have seen it? It's a great movie. Imagine a Hollywood, it's like a Hollywood summer blockbuster that talks about Jesus and the gospel and the resurrection. That would never happen today. That won't even happen in most pure flicks movies. But, so this is all speculation, but it's, it's, it's very fascinating. So Barabbas is this, this like wicked uh, murderer, which he is. He's a womanizer. He's a drunken carouser. But along the way, he keeps being reminded of the man who died in his place. He, he's being reminded of the sun that went black. He's being reminded of him crying out to his God. He's reminded because he keeps meeting Christians. Even his girlfriend becomes a Christian. He's arrested several more times. The last time he's arrested, he ends up in a cell, in a cell with, with Peter. And Peter witnesses to him, and he converts and becomes a Christian. This, again, Hollywood, speculation. But it's fascinating to think about Barabbas' life after this. He is the first one that our Savior stood in place for. He's definitely not the last. Pilate, one more thing I want to bring up. Pilate had him to be scourged. Now, if you've read through the Gospels, if you've heard any sermon in the Gospels before, you know what scourging is. It is flogging. A whip with leather cords and bone and pieces of metal that tear into the flesh so that you often see the inside of someone. So preachers love to pull that out. And so did Mel Gibson in The Passion of the Christ. But why? Why do the gospel writers not pull that out? The gospel writers are not concerned with the blood and the gore that we are. The gospel writers don't need sensationalism. They don't want you to feel sorry for weak, helpless Jesus like Mel Gibson did. That's what he missed. They want you to feel sorry for those who betrayed him. They want you to feel sorry for those who are blinded by their hatred. They want you to feel sorry for those who condemned him. Jesus is not to be pitied. The wicked people who sent him to the cross are. And so many people I talk to, and if I'm talking to you, listen up. If you watched the, the Passion of the Christ and you cried and you, you were so upset because you saw all the blood, you missed the point because Mel Gibson missed the point. If you saw all that blood and you don't see Jesus going to the cross for you, you missed the point. If you didn't cry out because of your own sin and repentance and turn to him, you missed the point. If you didn't cry out in gratefulness that it wasn't the, the flogging that was the worst thing, it was the wrath of God poured out for your sin, then you missed the point. Amen. Amen. That's why we don't need the sensationalism and all the blood and all that. Because this is just momentary. That's not the lasting image that is in our head. The lasting image is, is that man rose from the dead. That man is seated on high and he is king and he reigns forever. Here's our conclusion this morning. Amen. There's a great lesson in encouragement. Because even when all the forces of evil... Even when all of Satan's devices, the accusation, the instigation, the condemnation come together against Christ, our Father, our sovereign God has all 
has it all orchestrated for his glory and our good. I want you to think about these last thoughts. I'm going to give you a moment to meditate on each one as we recount the details of this story. Our Savior was bound for a time so that he could be released to, uh, excuse me, so that he could release the bounds of sin in our lives. And he was bound for a time, but then he bound Satan in his resurrection. He was delivered over to death so he could deliver us over to the Father in glory. Amen. The innocent took the place of the guilty that we might be guiltless. He was condemned to death so that we might never face condemnation. Though we are as deserving as Barabbas, sons of our father the devil, he stood in our place and made us sons of our father in heaven. He was mocked as king of the Jews, but now reigns as king of all creation. And his kingdom will not end. So let us pray and worship our great king, the lamb who was slain for our sins. Amen. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you. We praise you for your salvation. Salvation that can only come from you, this perfect plan of redemption that redeems us from the pit. And unless we realize we are like the Jews shouting, crucify him, and we are like Barabbas who deserves to die, then we miss the point. But because Christ stood in our place, he was crucified for us, he was delivered over for us, we are delivered in him. We praise you, O Lord, for the salvation of Jesus Christ the resurrection from the dead, the ascending on high, our resurrection from the dead, our ascending one day to reign with him. How awesome it is that you take sons of the devil and turn them into sons of God. How awesome it is that the one with the power over all creation would remain silent and lay down his life for us. And because he did, we are in his hands now and forevermore. And we look forward to the day when we stand with him in his kingdom that is not of this world, but a kingdom that will not end and where will be our final home. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.